Now, the wrists were here. The Kaminskys. The hunters with one child. <laughs> the, uh, and it was a long time ago. Pharaohs and Garniers, I think, were the first two families to come in after I arrived. And they're still here. Um, I've told you often, I don't really expect one sermon to change your life. I do expect to see the cumulative effect of sermons on your life. And after 500, I hope you're different. And uh, I thought about going around and just asking people, you know, what, what book were we in when you arrived? And some people got here during John. Some got here during Luke. Some here got here during Romans, either the first or second time. So the first sermon I ever preached here was from the end of Romans 3, and it was called The Heart of the Gospel. And my prayer is, sometime, however many of those you made, and nobody made all of them, except for me, um, that somehow the heart of the gospel came through. And so I just appreciate that, to some degree, there's been people willing to hear God's word week after week after week. Um, That is not as common as you think. And so you're all uh, very appreciated for putting up with me 500 times. So, thanks. We're going to go to Daniel 3 today. The uh, story of Daniel and his, his three friends, Warner, Smith, and Fitzgerald. Against the evil King Roethlisberger. So, I might have a different version than you do. So, hey, you gave me the idea. So, I uh, am fighting off a head cold, and so Dave got a copy of my sermon in advance in case I couldn't do this today. So, anyways, you'll want to take out your sermon outline, and and we'll actually turn to the real uh, Daniel chapter 3. It is a long passage, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I will read the whole thing as we go through it, uh, because it's so long, and it is communion uh, today. Um, So let's open with a word of prayer, and then we will uh, jump into Daniel 3. Get the obligatory bottle of water up here. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we have come to your word, and uh, we thrill to hear this story. And we thrill to realize that this is the truth. And we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you enable us to understand what you want us to learn from this text, and do this in and for each one of us this morning, in Jesus' name, and for his glory. Amen. In the early uh, 1940, in the early months of 1940, the British sent a force of some 350,000 men into the low countries of Europe to stem the tide of the German advance into France, Belgium, and Holland. They were caught in a brilliant pincer movement by the invading German forces, 
and the beleaguered British expeditionary force was pushed back to the beaches of a small Belgian town of Dunkirk. To everyone's surprise, the Germans halted their advance in order to regroup. And as England and the world waited for what appeared to be the sure and certain annihilation of 350,000 men, a three-word message was transmitted from the besieged army at Dunkirk. It read simply, But if not. And the British people understood the biblical import of that cryptic message. It was a reference to the Old Testament book of Daniel, where Daniel and his friends choose death rather than worship an image of the pagan king. Daniel 3, verse 17 and 18. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The British Expeditionary Army surrounded cut off on the brink of destruction, was declaring to Britain and to the world that even in apparent defeat, they were, in fact, victorious. The message, more eloquent than a sermon delivered in any cathedral, galvanized the British people. In a matter of hours, thousands of boats of every description headed across the dangerous waters of the English Channel. And at the risk of their own lives from... Uh, enemy fire, they began the evacuation of the heroic but beleaguered army and what historians now refer to as the miracle of Dunkirk. The British Navy sent destroyers and transport ships to evacuate the troops, but they couldn't get in to the shallow water off the beaches of Dunkirk. And this is when all the little ships uh, came to play their part. A variety of motorboats and fishing smacks, trawlers, lifeboats, paddle steamers, and every type of watercraft came over the channel to assist in the escape. They mainly ferried the troops from the beaches to the destroyers uh, laying offshore. But thousands of troops came all the way back to England in some of those boats. And the numbers were that 338,000 men were rescued off the beaches of Dunkirk because of a three-word message, but if not. And I wonder today if our troops cut off, sent that message, how many would know what it meant. This chapter of Daniel has long been taught as a lesson about the faith of these brave young men. And we're told to emulate them. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But ultimately, this chapter isn't about having more faith. It's about having the, placing the faith that you do have in the one true God who is sovereign over all circumstances, even fiery furnaces. That's the point of this passage. The book of Daniel, as I've said, is not about us. And it's not about Daniel. And it's not about his three friends. But it's about a sovereign God and the coming of his kingdom. 
And with that in mind, let's continue our study of the book of Daniel. We're in chapter 3. And we start by seeing the defiance of Nebuchadnezzar. That should be the first blank in your outline. Is that actually a blank? I wasn't feeling really good when I put that together. So sometimes I'm not sure that it comes out the way I intended it to. The defiance of Nebuchadnezzar, verses 1 through 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, the idea of an enormous golden statue immediately reminds us of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. In that dream, which we looked at in the last two weeks, there was a statue and it had a head of gold which represented Nebuchadnezzar, while the rest of the body was made of silver, bronze, iron, and clay, which depicted lesser kingdoms that would come after him and end up fragmented, destroyed by the coming of God's kingdom. Now, however, Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue entirely of gold in an apparent attempt to counteract the dream. If you're going to understand Daniel 3, you have to understand that Daniel 3 is a response to Daniel 2. We often read it isolated and out of context. But Daniel 3 is Nebuchadnezzar's response to the dream of Daniel 2. And this is a defiant statement on the part of Nebuchadnezzar asserting that there would be no end to his kingdom. There would be no after this. In the dream, he was the head of gold, but then it said, after this, there'll be a kingdom of silver. After this, there'll be a kingdom of bronze. After this, there'll be a kingdom of uh, iron. And Nebuchadnezzar says, there isn't going to be any after this. We're going to make a statue. It's going to be all gold. It's a deliberate, defiant statement that that dream which we saw in Daniel 2, was not going to happen, even though it was given directly by God. The identity of the statue isn't made clear. Many think it was of Nebuchadnezzar himself, but the text merely states that it was the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But it says that 
eight times. In other words, even if the statue represented some god, there's no doubt as to whose power lay behind the statue. It was not the power of the god of the golden image, but the power of the king who set the image up. Now that stands in contrast to Daniel's statement back in uh, Daniel 2 verse 21, that God is the one who sets up kings and removes kings. This statue is Nebuchadnezzar's defiant declaration that as the king, he sets up gods and removes them. And this is the main point of Daniel 3. It's not that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had great faith, which they did. In reality, they're merely supporting actors in the story. This is a dramatic confrontation between the king who sets up gods and the god who sets up kings. And if you miss that point, you miss the meaning of Daniel 3. What's more, the location of the statue is significant. We're told in verse 1, it's on the plain of Dora and the province of Babylon. The plain of Babylon. Where have we read that before? If you remember, it's where the Tower of Babel was built back in Genesis 11. In fact, Babylon gets its name from the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was a defiant attempt to make a name for the people who built it as a lasting legacy to their own glory and to prevent the people from being scattered throughout the earth. And Nebuchadnezzar and his golden image have somewhat of the same goals in mind. It's designed to establish a lasting monument to his own glory and to provide a unifying focus for his kingdom. And that's why we have these long lists of these various officials twice. Not just the local officials from Babylon, but leaders and rulers, it says, from the provinces, from throughout the empire, who are now gathered together before the statue. The occasion is a public statement of the unity of Nebuchadnezzar's empire, and it's rooted in the common worship of this image, a religious unity built around this God, which, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar is willing to enforce with the death penalty. Now, before we set Nebuchadnezzar up as the worst guy ever, we don't have to go back very far to see similar things happening in our own day and age. Every totalitarian regime in the 20th century had statues erected in honor of their tyrants. Whether it was statues of Lenin in the Soviet Union, statues of Mao in China, statues of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. People had to pay homage to those statues if they wanted to advance in society, in some cases, simply to stay alive. And there are still countries around the world building great statues to whoever their current tyrant is. And usually, in most of these places, one is allowed to keep believing in whatever God you wanted to believe in as long as it was subordinate to the empire. Allegiance to the state was more important than allegiance to any god. And, of course, that's still true in many countries of the world. Now, our society is certainly different in that we don't have a dictator, and nobody, at least not yet, is threatening to shoot us or toss us into a fiery furnace. But in some ways, our society is actually worse. 
mostly because this pressure is very subtle and sometimes we don't even realize it's going on. Our culture places the same type of pressure on each one of us to put God in second place. We find ourselves constantly pressed to keep our beliefs private and secondary. We can believe whatever we want as long as we don't ever talk about it. Anyway, back to Daniel 3. That's just an aside to say we're not so different as the people back then. It seems at first that Daniel's golden image is accomplishing its purpose fairly successfully. This diverse group of officials came in response to his decree representing their lands, a point underlined by repeating that long list of titles. And it's important because they're not there merely as political rulers, but as representatives of, verse 4, peoples, nations, and languages. And then when this cacophony of different musical instruments blares out, by the way, some commentators think that Daniel 3 is kind of making fun of pagan worship here. Uh, Since none of these instruments are used individually in Israel's worship, uh, let alone in this bizarre orchestra. Anyways, when the music starts, verse 7, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And for a moment, the whole world was united in bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And yet, there's always a few guys who just can't get with the program. And so we hear about the accusations against the Jews. The accusations against the Jews, verses 8 through 12. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. At this point, some of these Babylonian officials come forward and they reveal this small detail previously passed over. And so while the whole world is bowing before Nebuchadnezzar's image of gold, one small group of three men had resisted the decree, standing with unbowed heads at the crucial moment. And you can picture this vast plain and this huge image, this huge golden image there, and everybody getting down on their knees and bowing down. And then somewhere in the middle, there's three guys just standing there. Just enjoying the sunny day out on the plains of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, to give them their proper Hebrew names, they failed to bow down and worship the statue, thereby disrespecting not only the statue, but the king as well. And they're accused of ingratitude. Verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed. They ought to be thankful you gave them these big jobs. They're accused of impiety. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But the fundamental element of both these charges was their offense against Nebuchadnezzar himself. 
That's certainly not how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saw it. They're simply trying to be obedient to the commandment. Exodus 20, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. It's worth noting there's only three men in the whole crowd who refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. We don't know where Daniel was. The text doesn't say. We can only presume he's back in the capital city running the empire. But this highlights the fact that sometimes standing up for God can be a pretty lonely activity. And it doesn't matter if you're standing on a national stage or you're simply... Uh, visiting with your unbelieving relatives who think you're some sort of moronic freak. Some of you have lived there. Oh, here comes the Jesus guy. But there are times in life when doing what's right means you can't hide in the crowd. Now, the classic example from church history is seen in the life of Martin Luther the great reformer who has all the best quotes. It's true. You watch Mighty Python and the Holy Grail, all the best insults are direct quotes of Martin Luther. You can't say them in church. And, and he didn't say them in church either, but he wrote them down. But he was called in front of the church authorities And he's told to abandon his teaching on justification by faith alone. Which he called the cardinal teaching upon which the church stands or falls. And he boldly declared there in front of all the church authorities, unless I'm convicted by scripture and plain reason, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And there were tremendous consequences for Martin Luther for standing up to the accusations against him. And there's tremendous consequences for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for standing up to the accusations against them. And whenever you have to stand up to others because of your faith, you need to understand you will have to uh, face the consequences of, of faith. Verses 13 through 18, the consequences of faith. The Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? Word of advice here. Don't challenge God like that. It's not going to work out well for you. Just thought you might want to keep that in mind. 
Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So now the matter is brought to the king's attention. And he immediately flew into furious rage at the challenge to his authority and national unity. Nebuchadnezzar puts him on the spot and asks him if this is true. But without giving them any time to answer, he sets before them a choice. If when the music sounds, they're willing to bow down and worship the image that he has made, then their lives will be spared. However, verse 15, if you do not worship, you shall be... uh, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond to the king's challenge with one of their own. It says, our God can handle this. Our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us. But if not, we will not serve your God's or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, no one reading the book of Daniel can seriously suggest that God's power to save his people from the fire is ever in doubt in this book. So here the question in the minds of these three men is not whether God is able to rescue them, but whether or not rescuing them is part of his plan. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego aren't presuming to predict the outcome here. They understood that since God is sovereign, it's his choice whether to be glorified in their deaths or to be glorified in their deliverance. Either way, it doesn't affect their decision because God is going to be glorified. And therefore, they will remain faithful. Now, most of us would think or wonder, you know, if this happened to me, how would I react? Would I be as faithful as these three or would I cave under the pressure? First of all, God hasn't promised uh, to give us the grace to face all the desperate situations that we can imagine. He's promised to sustain us only in those situations he actually brings us into. He doesn't promise that we'll be able to imagine how we could go through the fire But he does promise that if he leads us through the fire, he'll give us sufficient grace at that time. And secondly, I've seen this same battle being fought daily in my own heart over much lesser issues. Am I going to declare the Lord to be my primary allegiance, come what may, or will I bow to the multitude of idols that the world presents? And unless you're an actor, our idols aren't usually golden statues. Our idols are the various pleasures, desires, attitudes that the culture tells me I need to have in order to live a fulfilled and worthwhile life. For some, their golden image is the respect and admiration and acceptance of others. 
For a lot of young adults here, high school and college, there's pressure to be part of the in-crowd. Even though the cost of admission to this club is that uh, we shouldn't show respect to our parents or talk about God or keep ourselves pure until marriage. And this image of acceptance says, bow to me or I will throw you into the fiery furnace of mockery and the ridicule of your peers. And pastors aren't exempt. Pastors feel the demands of this idol just as much as anyone else. We're constantly bombarded by uh, mail and email saying the measure of our success is the size of our church. And they say if we just tone down the whole Bible thing, and we got a lot more flashy and a lot more fun, then we could get more people and be more successful. Recently I was at a conference of sorts, and someone there, knowing I was a pastor, asked me, how's your church doing? Now, this is evangelical speak for how many people you got. And I just answered, obviously, incorrectly, church is going well. Thanks for asking. So then he had to actually ask, how many people you got? Whereupon I said, with a straight face, 250,000, more or less. And he just stared at me. He was like, really? I said, no, but people usually want to hear a really impressive number. and That one sounded pretty impressive to me. I'm sure he thinks I'm totally nuts. He'll never set foot in our church. Um, I did, however, get some looks from a few people there who knew me, and there were the sort of, you know, are you causing trouble again kind of looks, you know. And apparently I caused enough trouble I now recognize those kinds of looks. Um, But our idols can be anything from food to drink to sex to romantic daydreams to ambitions to wealth and power. In fact, our hearts are all the more condemned by the smallness of the pressure under which we cave in and bow down. For most of us, it's not the grand declaration uh, that come what may, we'll never bow down to the idols of our hearts. We are not like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Instead, we slip almost unthinkingly into the daily submission to our idols' demands, just like the rest of the crowd on the plain of Babylon. We pay no consequences for our faith because we take no stands for our faith. But not so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They trust God, face the consequences, and they saw the deliverance of God. The deliverance of God, verse 19 to the end. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, second time, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Seven is used in the Bible as a number of completeness, and what this means, it was as heated, as hot as it could possibly get. They couldn't make it any hotter. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. 
He declared to his counselors, did, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their clothes were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent an angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get thrown into the fiery furnace. But when Nebuchadnezzar went to look in the fire, he not only saw they were free and unharmed, but they were joined by a fourth person of whom he said had the appearance, uh, he said the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And the question of whether this fourth, fourth person is a Christophany, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, or merely a visit by an angel, isn't made clear in the text. In either case, however, it is a physical demonstration of God's presence with believers in their distress. I happen to lean towards the pre-incarnate Christ part, but... The text isn't specific. So we're kind of reading into that a little bit. But either way, God is with them. And God doesn't simply rescue his servants uh, from the fire. He sends a personal emissary to pass through the fire with them. And as a result of his presence with them, they come out unharmed. And because of this miracle, Nebuchadnezzar is forced to bless Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But notice that he says, verse 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they didn't serve and worship any God except their own. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't claim this God as his own. He says it's their God, not my God. His heart is not changed. Now think about this. Three men are thrown into this overheated furnace. They don't burn. Somebody else looks like an angel or son of the gods is in there with them. Say, yeah, your God's okay. Not, not so bad. But at no point does he say, is this my God? His heart's still unchanged despite this dramatic miracle happening right in front of him. And there's also great irony here. Uh, we see the ones who obey Nebuchadnezzar's commands die, while those he condemned emerge alive. And the issue is clearly not whether 
Israel's God can keep their servants alive, but whether Nebuchadnezzar can keep his servants alive. Now, I have asthma, and I can immediately tell if someone's smoking anywhere near me. Even if they're not smoking at the time, I usually can tell if they've been around somebody smoking. And unless it's got a really big dining room, I don't even go into restaurants that allow smoking. But here, these men emerge, not just unharmed, their clothes don't even have the smell of smoke on them, which to me is a powerful testimony to the comprehensiveness of their salvation by God. This experience is a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Think Isaiah took on new meaning for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Because it's in the midst of these trials that God promises his people can count on his presence with them. And once again, there is a final note here. We can't afford to miss in all this. And that's the reminder that Jesus is God with us. That commitment to be with us, no matter how bad the circumstance finds its richest fulfillment in the coming of Christ. (coughs) We learn from Matthew chapter 1. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He took on flesh and dwelt among us, experiencing all the temptations and pressures of this world, and yet did not sin. Jesus felt the full range of the pain and sorrow of life in a fallen world, touching lepers, weeping at Lazarus' tomb, dealing with grief. However, even this humbling of himself wasn't sufficient. To complete the promise, Jesus was himself accused and condemned to death and nailed to a cross. And yet Jesus went through his own personal furnace completely alone. God was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, and we have his promise that he'll be with us in our trials. But on the cross, Jesus felt the utter aloneness of total abandonment by God. When he passed through the waters, there was no one by his side. When the fire of God's wrath blazed over him unchecked, he was alone. There was no companion to share his burden, no angel sent to relieve his agony, no saving hand from God reaching down to preserve him in his hour of greatest need. For Jesus, there was no deliverance from the power of death. Now, why would God be with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but not with his own son? Why would he be faithful to his promise to be with sinners and then abandon his only son? You'd expect it to be the other way around. The answer to that question is that on the cross, Jesus was taking on himself the fiery pain that we deserve for our idolatry. Unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'm no hero of the faith. Every time I bow to the idols of my heart, I merit God's judgment. And yet God took 
all the fiery judgment that I deserve and all the fiery judgment that you deserve. And he laid it on his son. And he paid the price for me and he paid the price for you on the cross so that I might pass through the fire unburned and emerge safely out on the other side. What's more, his perfect faithfulness is now credited to my account as if it were my own. A faithfulness that far exceeds that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is now mine as a free gift. That's what Daniel is all about. It's a gospel book, and it's about celebrating the one who went through the fire of God's wrath alone and in our place, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer, Emmanuel God with us. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that.